Hello listener, Gould here. This is just your friendly reminder to check this week's show notes for spoiler and content warnings. Enjoy this week's episode. And welcome to the Unbreakable Movie Chain, the podcast where each week we discuss and review a film based on a link to the previous movie. I'm Ed Howells, and I'm joined by my co-host, Madeline Gould. Hi, Ed. Hi, Gould. Uh, <laughs> so what, what have you been watching this week? Gosh, I, I've watched a lot of stuff this week. So um, I went to the cinema to see Evil Dead Rise. Yes. And I think you've seen that too. I have, yes. What did you think? Um, I had a lot of fun. I had it's an so awful lot fun. of fun. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's a lot of what you want from a sort of grisly, splattery horror. Uh, it does all of that stuff yeah. really, really well. It's not really, to my mind, an Evil Dead movie because it's not very funny. Like, there there are a couple of big laughs, but it's, it's played with a much, much straighter bat than uh, mm. than certainly Evil Dead 2. Because um, mm. when, when I think of the Evil Dead movies, I think of that splattery horror but more mm. than that I think of the slapstick comedy you know what I mean I, th- I think of Bruce Campbell having a fight with his own hand tonally it was much closer to the original Evil Dead films than the 2013 Evil Dead film sure which I've not seen oh have you not seen it it's it's really worth a watch I think a lot of people don't like it but I, I really enjoy it but it's a little bit too serious I mean the Evil Dead original films you can't really say that there's a right lot going on in terms of the characters and their lives no, no. like no because that's not the point no. whereas this um I think both of these uh, new ones the the evil is a metaphor for other stuff whereas in the original Evil Dead films the the evil is just an evil the the Evil Dead Rise is much closer to the original than the 2013 one is yeah. but yeah you're right it is still a little bit too there's still a little bit too much plot going on sure <laughs> which isn't something you'd think you'd, you'd be bothered by do you know also i think just in the style like the aesthetic of the deadites mm-hmm. it's much grittier but i feel like it's it's trying too hard to be scary on its own yeah yeah you're right there's no there's not as much comedy in it no but you know i love the the gore was great yes. um <laughs> that that elevator is brilliant oh, the, uh, the, the reverse shining yeah. <laughs> now we are going to have to be careful about spoilers so i do want to talk to, to you about know, this more yeah. we'll have to do that off the air we'll do it later mm-hmm. i do because i also really want to talk to you about i know beforehand you were anxious about the cheese grater so i'm interested to see what you um feel about the cheese grater um having seen it yes the, the cheese grater was scarier in the trailer than it is in the movie yeah that's exactly <laughs> what I thought. i thought that they they teased us with something and then didn't manage to make it worse than what we were imagining. Sure. Which I guess is always a problem, but, you know. Well, it's just, I, I spent a lot of time when I was watching it. It's one of those movies that makes a lot of promises that it's going to fulfil mm-hmm. later. You know, it's it, like mm-hmm. all, all, like shots of shots of sharp implements and, you know, mm-hmm. shots of, of uh, delicate body parts and stuff. You, you just, they're, they're all promises that m- most of them are, sub- uh, are fulfilled subsequently. There's Chekhov's guns all over the place. <laughs> Chekhov's scissors <laughs> under the sofa. Ah, yes. <laughs> I'm 
longing for a film that properly frightens me. I want to be scared. And it's been a while since I've seen anything like that. I've got high hopes for um, The Boogeyman. Oh, yeah. Which I saw a trailer for. Based on a Stephen King, isn't it? It is, yeah. And it's uh, the lass is the girl from Yellow Jackets, who is very good in Yellow Jackets. So I'm, I'm hopeful. Uh, so Evil Dead aside, mm-hmm. uh, what else have I been watching? I've been so I'm doing a course at my local independent cinema, the Broadway, about old Hollywood. And this week coming, we're focusing on the films of Kirk Douglas. So I've been watching a lot of Kirk Douglas films. Mm. Champion, which I thought was fantastic. Um, and then on Sunday we were uh, we had a, a sort of slobby sofa afternoon and watched The Vikings from 1958. Lovely. <laughs> have you seen it? Yes, yeah, I've seen The Vikings. Uh, I've not seen. It's rubbish. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah, that Sunday afternoon kind of way. In a Sunday afternoon way, I think we were both we were watching the dramatic finale where they're fighting all over battlements and stuff. And Richard was like, "God, I don't think I've ever seen such a boring siege scene (laughs) ever." Uh, (laughs) Even uh, even Kingdom of Heaven does a siege scene well. Yeah, exactly. And Tony Curtis has got a um, at one point in the film. I mean, this is a spoiler for the Vikings, but it doesn't really. I don't think it will really impact people. Also, the film was from 1958, so if you've not seen it yet and you're worried about spoilers, I feel like that ship has sailed. The um, he's had his hand cut off and he had like the um, sleeve that he's got on to hide the fact that he's still got a hand so it just makes it makes his arm look really long <laughs> <laughs> so he's fighting he's fighting Kirk Douglas all over the battlements with his sword and he's, um, he's just got one really long arm which is really funny and um, also for some reason everyone else has got quite good costumes on but Tony Curtis is just in his pants the whole way through sure. and he's got lovely legs but I just thought god you've drawn the short straw here you've got to be in your pants for the entire film <laughs> he, he does have lovely legs though when uh, one day we'll cover some like it hot and we'll see those pins in action oh yes what about you what have you been watching this week um that's a good question the evil dead and I think aside from the movie we're covering today I think that's the only movie I've watched this week yeah everything else has been telly I did finish reading my book though oh yeah <laughs> did you enjoy it yeah very much very very much in the end Ian M. Banks, the player of games. And yeah, it took me a little while to get into it, as it always does with Ian Banks' writing. But then once I was in, yeah, it hooked me. And the finale is gripping. I think it's because the build-up, generally the, the, the novel, it's sort of a, a very slow build-up. So it's not it's not a sort of rip-roaring page-turner, thrill-a-minute kind of read. But mm. once it gets to where it's going, my goodness, mm. yeah, it, it, it is absolutely mm. gripping. So I guess we should talk about what we're going to talk about. <laughs> Let's talk about what we're going to talk about. Uh, So this week's movie is uh, Ridley Scott's Thelma and Louise. A little bit of housekeeping first. It's uh, 129 minutes, directed by Ridley Scott, who at this point in his career had made Alien, uh, Blade Runner, were sort of big hits at that point in his career. He'd also made Black Rain, which I think you've seen, haven't you? I have not seen. Oh, you've not seen? You were telling me about something Mm. else that he made that was absurd. Oh, (laughs) yeah, no, I was talking about Legend. Ah, legend, yes, which I also haven't seen. But he'd had he'd had massive success by this point with Alien and Blade Runner, and in some ways this is a departure from from both of those. Um, but in other ways, you can see the same fingerprints 
Script by Callie Curie, who uh, won an Oscar for her screenplay. This was her first screenplay, and she went on to be the writer-director of Divine Secrets of the IR Sisterhood. And she also created the smash hit TV show uh, Nashville. Mm-hmm. Original music for the movie is Hans Zimmer, who we will meet again and again and again. Over and over. This is before he went super woomphy. Yes. <laughs> Um, but you, you you can see it does feel like a Hans Zimmer score. Like it particularly mm-hmm. um, reminded me of the uh, of the Lion King. He went on to work again with Ridley Scott on uh, Gladiator and Hannibal and Black Hawk Down. But at this point, he was quite established already. He'd made Rain Man. Um, the DOP is Adrian Biddle, who uh, did work again with Ridley Scott once on 1492. But interestingly, uh, he he'd been DOP on uh, not Alien, but James Cameron's sequel to Alien. Uh, aliens. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, he he then went on to uh, to be DOP on um, the Mummy and the Mummy Returns, and also on one of my uh, favourite. What I don't believe in guilty pleasures. I think guilty pleasures no. is uh, it's a bullshit concept. Either th- mm-hmm. either a thing is a pleasure or a not. But if I did believe in guilty pleasures, uh, Adrian Biddle was DOP on one of mine, which is the uh, what is it? <laughs> the early nineties Sylvester Stallone Judge Dredd. <laughs> 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 which is one of the stupidest movies I've ever seen in my life. No. And there's a complete... You... It is. It is. And it... What? The Sylvester Stallone version of Judge Dredd? <laughs> and it does a complete disservice to the source material. Uh, but I saw it when I was, I don't know, probably about nine and... I loved it. <laughs> of course you did. You were nine. <laughs> and I will still, I will watch it anytime it's on TV. Uh, whizzing through, uh, production designer was Norris Spencer, who worked again with Ridley Scott on 1492, which is 1492 Conquest of Paradise, which I hadn't heard of. And I suspect I've never heard that's of this. not a good sign. <laughs> no, I think if you, if, if Ridley Scott has made a film and you've not heard of it, it's probably because they've done a lot of work to bury it. Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, it was also production designer on Black Rain and Hannibal. The editor was Tom Noble, uh, who I don't believe worked with Ridley Scott again. Um, But he went on just after this. uh, This might pique your curiosity. He was editor on a few of those early 90s erotic thriller type movies. Oh, yes. (laughs) So he was editor on Final Analysis, Body of Evidence and Colour of Night, all of which have very steamy, uh, very steamy cover art. Um, I've, I've seen Body of Evidence I haven't seen the other two but I assume they're in a similar vein is Body of Evidence the one with Madonna and Willem Dafoe uh, yeah, and Candle one. Wax yeah. yeah okay that's the only one I've seen despite my little run on erotic 90s thrillers earlier this year yeah and, 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 <laughs> and I knew you'd had a little uh, um, run of them so I thought that might pique your interest oh yeah no I'm delighted to hear it um, <laughs> The uh, art director is Lisa Dean. This is her only art director credit, but she was set decorator subsequently on Dances with Wolves and The Bodyguard, and also on something that I've abbreviated here, but I can't remember what it's an abbreviation of. (laughs) 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 Set decorator Anne H. Arins. Uh, who was set decorator on Nightmare on Elm Street, and the costume designer, Elizabeth McBride, who we'll meet again if we ever cover Shawshank Redemption. Uh, She was also costume designer on Driving Miss Daisy and the uh, John Travolta as Earthbound Angel movie, Michael. (laughs) Which, I don't know if you've seen that. I have not seen that. (laughs) Oh, dear, oh, dear. Oh, man. John Travolta, what a life. Oh, exactly. So uh, it received six Oscar nominations, 
Uh, it won one, as I mentioned, for the screenplay for Callie Curry. Both lead actresses, uh, both Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon, uh, were nominated for Best Actress. Um, so they were in direct competition, mm-hmm. which is possibly a reason that neither of them won it. Uh, do you know what they lost out to? Now, I think I do. Go on, then. Because I think this was the year that Silence of the Lambs cleaned up. So did they lose out to Jodie Foster? They did. Um, the other Oscar nominations it received were for Best Director, uh, Best Cinematography and Best Editing. Oh, do you know what films it beat to uh, Best Screenplay? It's not Silence of the Lambs because that was an adapted screenplay. So this is Best it's Original adapted. Screenplay. I have absolutely no idea because the only thing I know about that Oscars is that's the year that Silence of the Lambs cleaned up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have no idea, um, right? This, of course, was a category for which it was ineligible. So uh, Thelma Louise beat out Boys in the Hood, uh, Bugsy, uh, The Fisher King and Interestingly, considering where Thelma and Louise ends up, a movie called Grand Canyon. Oh. (laughs) Which I've neither seen nor heard of. I haven't seen any of the rest of those films. Mm -hmm. So I can't definitely say, but I would say that um, this is one of the best screenplays that there have been. So, yeah, great. I'm really pleased. You know, um, that's a bit of a spoiler there, Ed, because I uh, have indicated... (laughs) an opinion about the film that we're about to discuss ahead of our schedule. Have you? Did you? I, I, didn't, I didn't catch it. <laughs> cut it. Cut it cut in the it edit. In the edit. In the edit. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just uh, whiz through the cast list very quickly. Um, we've got Susan Sarandon as Louise, Gina Davis as Thelma, Harvey Keitel as uh, the Arkansas detective Hal, Michael Madsen as Jimmy, Susan Sarandon's sort of boyfriend, Christopher McDonald as the absolute shithouse Daryl. We've got uh, Stephen Tobolowsky, who is one of my all-time favourite, oh, it's that guy, actors. Every time I see him, I go, oh, it's Ned Ryerson. Who's Ned Ryerson? Groundhog Day. Oh, I've never seen Groundhog Day. What the what? I know, Ed, I know. Oh, my goodness me. I know, I know. I'm ashamed. <laughs> I'm ashamed of myself. All right, fair enough. Yeah, no, we, I mean, we, we have to cover Groundhog Day at some point. It's so much fun. I mean, n- n- no spoilers, but if we just based purely on links mm-hmm. to Thelma and Louise, tried to plug all the gaps in my film watching, <laughs> we would have enough films to go at for decades. Yeah, I, I can't <laughs> so... wait to find out what you've picked, I've got to say. Uh, two, two more uh, that I want to just mention from the cast Timothy mm-hmm. Carhart as Harlan the would-be mm-hmm. rapist and mm-hmm. um, a, a young Brad Pitt or what I'm going to refer to as two-thirds of Brad Pitt because there is not <laughs> one single gram of meat on the man's body it is just the skin and bones of Brad Pitt skin, bones he's, and a six-pack the thing is he's, he, the age gap between him and Gina Davis in real life isn't that big sure. but the age gap between them in the film feels massive he feels like a teenager yes anyway We'll come on to that a little bit more later. It was the film was preserved in the in the Library of Congress National Film Registry in 2016 for cultural, historical, or aesthetic significance. Uh, it had a budget of 16 and a half million and took a box office of 45.4 million. So fair to say, quite the financial success. Right. So yeah, um, I would just like to say that in uh, in honour of the film i am wearing my susan sarandon white tank top <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope you appreciate that Ed. i didn't catch that but i do appreciate it now we've got a little challenge for you now haven't we mm-hmm. gould is going to try and do a timed plot summary of the movie and because the movie is 129 minutes in length we're going to give her 129 seconds to try and uh, <laughs> summarize the plot of Thelma and Louise how, 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 com- how confident are you feeling that you can do it I'm confident that I can do it in the time but I'm not confident it's going to be a particularly good summary <laughs> let's see let's see how we go I have faith I think you can do this one you ready three two one 
Go. Naive and girlish Thelma has agreed to go to a cabin in the mountains with her best friend Louise. Too terrified to ask her buffoonish husband Daryl for permission, she bolts, leaving a microwave dinner and a note. Wanting to let her hair down, Thelma persuades Louise to stop off at a bar en route, where she falls in with Harlan. He plies her with drink, dances her dizzy, and brutalises her in the car park before attempting to violently rape her. Louise shoots Harlan to death, setting the women on course for an epic road trip slash violent journey of spiritual and social liberation, culminating in one of the most iconic final frames in movie history. Also featuring Harvey Keitel as a sympathetic FBI guy, Michael Madsen being a bit dreamy, actually, and Brad Pitt's abs. Spoiler, Thelma and Louise die at the end. That's it. That's your lot. Well, that was very quick. That was 52.34 seconds. But let's face it, if, if you can't summarise a plot in a few sentences, then something's gone wrong with the plot. Exactly. Well, also, it depends how deep you want to go, because yeah. I missed out an awful lot of things there. But I feel like that's enough to give listeners who perhaps haven't seen the film an idea as to what's going to happen in it. And, you know, we will cover... I mean, anything else that happens in the plot is stuff that is significant enough to the film that we will talk about it. Yeah. So... That was my logic. I agree. Okay, Ed, mm -hmm. should we talk about um, our first impressions? Yeah, well, had, had you seen Thelma and Louise before? No, I'd never seen it before. No, me neither. I knew the plot and I'd seen several sort of important bits, so I felt like I'd seen it. I felt like I knew it. I basically only knew, I knew what the end was and I knew that Brad Pitt was in it with his abs out. But <laughs> apart from that, I didn't really know anything. Did it? Did the film that you watched match up with what your idea of what it would be? Was it? Was it the same? Yeah, the only thing that surprised me about it was I didn't expect to laugh as much as I did um yeah how, yeah. how, how about you in a, in a lot of ways it did aesthetically it matched up exactly with what I expected in terms of the strength of the characters like script wise it was as good as I expected it to be but just the way that we got to the end mm. did take me by surprise a bit not take me by surprise I was pleasantly surprised and I was really happy to find that there's so much substance on the journey up to that final point mm. I wasn't sitting there thinking right when it when are they going to drive off the no. And I um and I wasn't sitting there thinking, how are they gonna make it so that driving off the cliff is the only option they've got? Yeah. And I was delighted to find out that we got there. Yeah, I, I loved it. Mm. <laughs> Thought it was fantastic. I think we'll we'll talk about it more when we get there, but that moment it's not the only option they've got. Mm -hmm. It's it's a choice that they make and that's kind of the point I think but yeah we'll talk about it more when we get there I, th I was talking to you about it wasn't I uh, Toby Jones the actor um I went to a kind of masterclass that he did and he was talking about the the different states of action mm. um that you can have as an actor and a performer and how it becomes heightened the the you know the lowest possible state is like an amoeba lying on the floor yes. and it goes all the way through to kind of grand opera where they're singing and they're singing and they're singing and the only thing left to do is die mm. that that feels like the end of this film to me. It's it's a true epic, which is not something I thought I would see based on, I thought it would be almost like a little intimate character study, but it, it isn't at all. It's kind of revenge Western. It's amazing. Yes, yeah, it's interesting. You, you mentioned revenge. I was, I was thinking about this when I was watching it and it's something that occurred to me actually last time I watched Gladiator. I don't know if you agree with this, but I don't think that there is a human impulse that is a stronger driver of a story 
than revenge. Mm. That's a sort of strong and primal instinct. Yeah. Thinking about some of the fantastic revenge films, like, have you seen the film Revenge? Mm, no, I don't think so. It's the relatively recent film. I can't think where it's available. Possibly a French female director whose name I now can't remember. I'll, I'll look it up. Um, and it's great. It's a revenge oh, film set frozen. in the desert. It's brilliant. It's so good. I guess... There's something about revenge as a motivator that makes violence a kind of air punchy thing. Well, it's we can all relate to that impulse, that desire to get your own back on mm. somebody or even something that has wronged you. Mm. And the truth is that the majority of us wouldn't ever be able to do no. it. So seeing someone else do it is incredibly cathartic. Exactly, exactly. Mm. Whereas like, love as a driver of a plot is a little bit more woolly. It's a little bit harder to define, actually, I think. Yeah, I think there's... because Well, there's revenge films, but also, I mean, specifically the films that we've just talked about there, and including Thelma and Louise, are kind of rape revenge films as well which is it's impossible not to get behind your hero if they are taking revenge for rape it's just you know you you get behind them although i would i would argue thelma and louise while um, revenge for a rape is one of the kind of instigating factors but actually it's kind of revenge on society (laughs) as a whole yeah Yeah, so sort of on 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 that note of of revenge uh, driving it, mm. I guess the best place to start actually is to chat about some of the characters and particularly we'll mm. talk about those uh, central women. We should probably start with Louise um, because indeed that's mm. where the film starts. Uh, the open opening lines that we actually hear properly, Louise's waiting tables uh, in this diner that's incredibly busy and noisy and she uh, she goes to say she says, decaf or regular and then she follows that up with you guys are kind of young to be smoking do you think it ruins your sex drive and then the next shot of her she's gone in the kitchen and she's smoking i find that interesting it's it's something that we see from her throughout the film this need to be in control of her impulses and in control of her own behavior and in this instance in control of her sex drive mm. she wants to be in control of everything and i think that's probably something that um has stemmed from her past experience of being raped Mm -hmm. Um, I I would assume there's a lovely kind of montage of the two girls packing to go away Mm -hmm. and the way that they're both doing it and going about it tells you so much about their characters and how different they are but um, Louise's packing is so meticulous Mm -hmm. and she has one drinking glass and she drinks from it and immediately washes it up and puts it on the side and she has like no possessions there's nothing on her worktop what what she does have she she puts in these sort of plastic Ziploc yeah. bags, doesn't she? She's got her hair up in a really neat bun and she's got, you know, jeans and a shirt on, but the shirt is buttoned right up to the, the neck. And she the way that she puts the jacket on and kind of like straight laces herself into it in a way. I mean, both of the characters go on such incredible journeys. And I think Louise's journey is one of taking the lid off something that's already there. A, a chaos and a darkness that's already there that she has to keep on a really tight leash because she knows what she's capable of. Because something happened in Texas, mm-hmm. uh, which is alluded to over the course of the film apparently um susan sarandon said that at the time no one got what happened in texas oh really and she said that she had to explain it to people and she's like and now modern audiences watch it and they immediately understand what happened in texas yeah. like but Th- thelma says to her it happened to you didn't it what happened to me yeah that's what happened in texas it, they, it's right there <laughs> it's right there but also she has a line about when you shoot a guy's head off with his pants down you can't go like texas isn't a place you want to go back yeah, to that's true. we like i i think she she as good as tells us that she can 
killed her rapist mm-hmm. in Texas. That's what. Well, that's what I mean. That's what I read from it, and I think that's really clear. Um, oh, interesting. Louise has already had the experience of the lid blowing off, mm. and she's had to put that back in. She's had a taste of what it's like to unleash herself and is terrified of it so keeps it really really straight laced whereas Thelma is much more blossoming into something mm. yeah I agree I just want to uh, go back on something you, you said that mm. you, you think that she killed a rapist in Texas I do oh interesting yeah I hmm. or if she didn't kill a rapist she definitely killed someone but she got away with it or she's she's in a different I don't know she did it and moved states and and that was that I, I don't know yeah, I, mean, I, I actually I, I don't really know how it works in America I think that she didn't get justice from the authorities for her rape and then took the law into her own hands and then like fled interesting because i think if she goes back to texas the the danger of her going back to texas is that she'll get arrested for the crime that she's already committed yeah 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 yeah, because i don't think that i don't think that character well i don't know maybe but it seems to me that given the circumstances of them trying to get to mexico Mm. if it was just the memory of the ordeal she went through preventing her from going through texas Mm that is something that maybe over the course of the film they might be able to get around or there might like that would be a feature but to me it's like no the law is what's stopping her from going maybe yeah I I just I didn't read into it that she'd killed her rapist because yeah that that, that yeah apart from that that just opens up a whole host of other questions like yeah how how has she got away with it because if, if you if mm. you kill somebody they they will track you down across state lines yeah, and particularly okay. if so if if she's been raped in Texas and she went to the authorities and the authorities did nothing and then she mm. killed her rapist she would be prime suspect yeah she would that, I suppose that does leave a few too many holes and in, in, the, in the moment that she kills Harlan I don't feel like it's something that she's done before I feel like it's something that she's okay. wanted to do she's mm. thought about it for every day since she was raped I think she's mm. thought about doing that and but I think I think it's open to interpretation I think I think what you've, you, what you've brought it's absolutely valid and I don't necessarily think I'm right that's what I, mind you I do have a habit of wild over interpreting things that happen in, in films <laughs> so it's entirely possible that I've got it completely wrong but either way she has been through a massive trauma that is a secret from her best friend mm-hmm. let's talk about Thelma <laughs> so when we when we meet Thelma it's a completely different yeah sort of com- yeah she's completely different to Louise although they're both in chaotic circumstances the the diner where Louise works is so chaotic and noisy and the house where Thelma lives with um, Daryl. Daryl. The house where Thelma lives with Daryl is there, there, there is a, a sort of chaos there as well. Like all, all of the chaos at Louise's diner is just sort of embodied in this figure of Daryl, mm. who is is just so so horrible. So Louise phones Thelma from the diner and re- re- refers to Thelma as your little housewife. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, these are the sort of these are the first impressions that we have of these characters when they're packing. When Thelma is packing to go away, she's a lot more sort of chaotic. There's a lot more abandon to it. And when she mm. puts the suitcases into car this is the first instance of, of louise sort of being a little bit out of control because thelma's sort of just shoving cases sort of haphazardly into the boot of the car and louise is like okay, careful just because uh, there's a sort of free spiritedness to thelma i think um louise definitely wants to appear free spirited 
mm-hmm. even if she isn't. Sure. For the first part of the film, she looks like she's in the 50s. Yeah. She works in a diner that I think is very, like her, her uniform is very old fashioned. Her car looks like a 50s car. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that's quite an important point. Yeah. I think it's quite, I think like from a design point of mm-hmm. view, it's really important. Coming out of the 80s, you had, there was a lot of sort of 50s nostalgia in the in yeah. the 80s um, sort of nostalgia for that sort of rockabilly stuff and the diners and, yeah. and all of that but I think it's also it is you know representative of the society that the women are a part of which it, 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 to these working class southern women it's like feminism never happened yeah it's they're still stuck in a very 1950s mentality yeah of um, what your role is in society. And for Thelma, that is the housewife. And I guess for Louise, that is the waitress. Um, what do you think of these two performances? Oh, they're great. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think they're both terrific. There's, there's, there's not much more that I can, that I can say about it than no. that, really. They're, I mean, the, like, <laughs> Gina Davis is so delightful in certain scenes. The scene after she's, uh, after she's had sex with JD uh, and comes and meets... Louise she's just so on the ceiling and delightful and it's it's brilliant and Louise says oh we've, we finally got you properly laid <laughs> <laughs> the performances are two exceptional actresses mm-hmm. doing their finest work it's just mm-hmm. it's brilliant I mean it's a testament to the script and their performances but also Ridley Scott's direction mm-hmm. there are scenes when you see from Louise's point of view how irritating Thelma's naivety yeah. is and it's like you're a fucking burden to me <laughs> you idiot but you also from Thelma's point of view see how easy it is to like get swept along in stuff that's no good for you and mm-hmm. I'm just totally with both of them all the time mm-hmm. even in the moments when they do stupid things yeah. they're just they're like proper human people yeah. I think they're exceptional, yeah. both of the performances. Well, I think I think of the two of them, Thelma is the one most given to doing stupid things. And I think it's it's because mm. she's sort of acting out her fantasies a little bit. So, mm. so she's decided that for this trip, for however long it's supposed to take, she is free and she can kind of do whatever mm. she wants. Why does she take the gun? So there's a line later on yeah. where it, it's made clear that Thelma had never touched the gun before. She sort of the impression given is that mm. she didn't like the idea of of the gun even mm. being around like it was just it was kept in a drawer and she just she wouldn't touch it but she's the one who brings the gun along mm. it makes me wonder what her actual plan is for this trip i think that that decision to bring the gun is based on a kind of hysterical naivety they're going into the mountains and she brings these like um they're like butterfly nets and they've got fishing rods they because um louise says to her oh just bring everything Yes. And so Thelma does. <laughs> and I, I don't. I think that the gun is just part of the everything. For her at the beginning, anyway. I don't think that there's any kind of premeditation or... I think I think you're right. But I think also she's got this sort of wild idea in her head that they're going to have this crazy trip and they might get into trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I think yeah. she's sort of living out this fantasy idea mm. in her head of, of what the trip's going to be like. It sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Her journey through the film is one of her eyes being opened and her discovering who she is. Mm-hmm. And... Louise is much more aware of who she is and trying to keep a lid on it and at some point she just is like well fuck it I'm just gonna let it go then yeah like fuck it this is who I am and weirdly the thing that I was frightened of showing to anybody I'm showing it to my best friend and she's meeting me halfway yeah and actually oh fuck maybe this is what we're actually like yeah you know they start in a very similar place and end up in the same place the journeys to get there are extremely different Mm -hmm. but 
they it's that perfect storm the characters complement each other perfectly the relationship apparently is based on the screenwriter callie curry mm-hmm. um her friendship with a country and western singer called um pam tillis so apparently yeah um, pam tillis and callie curry um were really good pals and the dynamic between Thelma and louise is based on their their friendship which i think is really lovely oh, right. it feels like a very sort of lived in relationship it feels like a very sort of rounded mm. relationship so it doesn't surprise mm. me that it's based on a real relationship. Uh, would you like to hear some alternative casting? Oh, yes. For the yes, roles of Thelma and Louise. alternative castings. So originally, the film kind of got a lot of its funding because uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and Jodie Foster were signed on to play Thelma and mm. Louise. But because the production dragged on for such a long time and it all got delayed, both of the actresses dropped out to go and do other work. Jodie Foster dropped out to go and do Science of the Lambs. Obviously, that worked out very well for yeah. her. Michelle Pfeiffer dropped out to go and do a film called Love Field. Ooh. Have you ever heard of it? I have not. That does not sound good. Doesn't sound good. <laughs> do you know who was cast to play who? I know the way it works in my head. I, I don't. Although, what I do know, which is completely unrelated to what you just asked me, Ed, yeah. but I'm going to tell you anyway, uh, it was Michelle Pfeiffer who persuaded Ridley Scott to direct because Ridley Scott originally came on as a producer mm-hmm. and didn't want to direct the film. And in interviewing other directors for it and spending so much time with the script talking about it with other directors, he was like, oh, I, oh maybe I want to direct this film. And <laughs> Then he cast Michelle Pfeiffer and then she persuaded him to do it. And the next two actresses that were put forward, in fact, they put themselves forward as a duo, uh, Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn. Okay. Uh, However, Meryl Streep ended up being far too busy. um, And they were like, Goldie Hawn is not right for either of these parts. And the two of them went on instead of Thelma and Louise to make Death Becomes Her. Uh, Of course. Yeah, Yeah, they they have a good time in that as well, to be fair. But there are... Oh, um, another interesting bit of casting news and maybe this will bring us on to the character of Daryl. The chap who plays Daryl is Gina Davis's ex-boyfriend and she recommended him for the part. I'm not sure how I would feel (laughs) if uh, my ex-partner recommended me for a character who was ultimately the worst. (laughs) That's amazing. I had no idea about that. That's really funny. (laughs) Isn't that fantastic? (laughs) Oh, dear me. Oh, Daryl. So Daryl is uh, Thelma's husband and we first meet him when, in actually in kind of like the opening sequence where Thelma is on the phone to Louise. They're talking about the fact that Thelma hasn't asked for her, her husband Daryl's permission to go on this trip yet and she's really nervous about it. So I was anticipating this like really menacing guy to turn uh-huh. up. What a dweeb. <laughs> <laughs> He's such a... Awful limp. He's terrible. Creep. Such a loser. It's just, it's the most wonderful introduction to a character that we are yeah. supposed to hate. He's so, he's such a loser. And for me, it's when he, he's like, uh, well, maybe that's why I'm the regional manager of the used car lot and you're not. And then he leaves the house and like falls over a load of building work because he's trying to get into his car. <laughs> it starts for, when he's delivering that line, he sort of swings his keys around like it's really, like he's like really cool. Look at me. As he's driving away, he's embarrassed because he's just fallen over in front of like the hired help. Yeah. I think it's like the gardener and a cleaner or something. And he just, for no reason other than his hurt pride, shouts out of the window like, and uh, be gone by five, uh, 
Three. Be got be out of here by three. Yeah. Okay, Daryl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know nobody in his life listens to him. I don't get the feeling that Thelma is frightened of Daryl. She's just she can't be bothered with dealing with his mood. Yeah, I don't know. Like it doesn't strike me that there's like there's not a physical threat, but there is a world of pain mm. coming her way if she does anything out of line. But the fact that she just leaves, she puts microwave dinner in for him and leaves him a note and is like, I'll be back in two days. And it just makes me wonder what. What does she expect to happen? Yeah, it's, it's it's more than a note she leaves him. You get that shot of it. She's left him a, a beer bottle with a little sort of cute love heart bear model on top. <laughs> oh, God. As you say, what was she expecting to happen? It's like you say about the gun. It's like she's preparing herself for an adventure mm. and dealing with Daryl is kind of part of that adventure. Yeah, she's gone, fuck it. Yeah, fuck basically. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the women set off to go um, to set off for this what sounds like a very grown up sort of like let's go as ladies into the mountains Mm -hmm. and actually but no Thelma wants to party Um, and she wants to say fuck it which is how they end up in this bar Mm -hmm. where we meet Harlan you know what Michael Madsen was originally up for the role of Harlan and um, he said he didn't want to do it I don't want to play this total villain you know which is interesting I think think Michael Madsen is more right for Jimmy as well Harlan's um, an interesting one isn't he he kind of everything about his physicality in that bar is so violent like when Mm. they're dancing he's kind of dancing with Thelma He's kind of got her in what looks like a kind of chokehold. Mm-hmm. And it's all, he's just, he oozes threatening massive red flag as yeah. soon as you meet him. Yeah, which Louise spots straight away. Lu- Louise's attitude to men throughout the film is really interesting because mm. the only one she trusts is Jimmy. The only one she trusts at all is Jimmy. And she doesn't trust Jimmy quite enough. And every other man who sort of comes into her orbit is given very short shrift. Um and she mm. she blows smoke directly into Harlan's face, so she sees she sees mm. through him right away, and doesn't want him anywhere near mm. them. Really, yeah, he's he's. It's a great. fantastic performance. Oh yeah, a really fantastic performance in what is a really difficult short period of time to be on screen. Yeah. But I mean, you know, he's dead within twenty minutes of the film starting. Yeah. yeah, we should we should probably talk about the rape and the murder. Yeah, it's so difficult to talk about it because I think it's it's a fantastic scene. I think mm. it's handled fantastically well. I think that the the escalation of, of the situation is really well handled. Mm-hmm. In terms of performance, the switch in Harlan's character from kind of seduction to brutalization mm-hmm. is really well done. Yeah. It's harrowing. It's extremely difficult to watch. Yeah. I think the the interesting thing is that Louise doesn't shoot him for attempting to rape her. Louise shoots him for lack of remorse. Like a, there is no chance of rehabilitation for this dick. So I need mm-hmm. to just get rid of him off the planet. The pla- the world will be a better place without him. Which is something that the waitress says to Harvey Keitel's cop later is like, if, if you know, someone was going to do it sooner or later. It's interesting, the violence in this film has caused a lot of controversy when the film was released. But for me, it is justifiable violence. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It just is. I'm so- sorry. Not, I'm not condoning murder, but as a, as a viewer watching a fictional story, that gunshot to me feels cathartic. Well, that's certainly, I think, what it is for Louise. It is catharsis because I think, well, it sort of comes back to my thoughts from earlier. I think she's been thinking about doing that to the person who raped her mm. for, I don't know how long it's been, 10 years, 15, 20 mm. years. She's walking away. They're going to walk away. And then he opens mm. his mouth again, Harlan does. And she's like, you know what? Fuck it. And that's her fuck it impulse. 
impulse there. She has tried to walk away from that situation with like a mic drop moment and and she hopes that he will learn a lesson from the experience but then he demonstrates to her that he's not going to and so it's like no right okay like get rid remove a predator from society stop it from happening to anybody else louise's survival mode kicks in and it's very calm Mm -hmm. yes because she she is so contained in the moment of actually doing it she's there's there's so Mm -hmm. much in susan saran's performance there that Mm -hmm. she's just sort of holding everything in Mm -hmm. and then after the murder after they've sort of driven away she has to pull over and and throw up mm. by the back wheel of the car like all of that mm. shit that she's containing from that moment just has to get out get of out. has to expel yeah yeah it. the temptation to compare the two performances mm. of Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis the whole way through this film it's the obvious thing to try and do yeah. but actually they're incomparable yeah. because they are completely different characters mm. and I I don't want to compare them because I think that both of them are just absolutely the highest quality the whole way through. And the way that Gina Davis performs that scene is extremely good. To me, it's the more clear choice in a very distressing scene where something distressing is happening to a character, be distressed in that the way that she is. Mm -hmm. Susan Sarandon, I think in that moment, had a lot more choices for how she could play Mm -hmm. it for her character. And I think it's interesting that the way she chose to play it is one of like real contained Mm -hmm. certainty. It's almost like we get a little flash of of her true self who just only continues to come to the surface throughout the rest of the film yeah. and you're right I think the performances are inseparable I think that probably is what uh, counted against them both in the Oscar race because how do you pick one of these two performances to say was best um, I was having a little look at some of the other awards that it's been nominated and won for and there's a few where they joint won best actress mm-hmm. when they were both nominated in a best actress category for like some of the more independent awards and um, international awards yeah yeah so after the murder, they go and check into a motel and Louise rings Jimmy, played by Michael Madsen. Yes. And he's quite the contrast to Daryl. He's such a dish. In- <laughs> when, 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 she phones, when she phones him up, Jimmy asks Louise, where are you? Are you all right? Which you can't, for a moment, we've met Daryl very briefly. We've had maybe five minutes of screen time with Daryl, but you cannot imagine a world where Daryl would ever answer the phone and say, are you all right? <laughs> you know. I just think that Jimmy's Jimmy's an interesting one. The state of their relationship is impossible to untangle. Who is it who's not committing? Is it him? Is it her? Is it both of them? I think it's both of them. They are drifting. Neither of them is willing really to commit to a relationship. And I think that is part of the attraction, certainly mm. for Louise, because she, de- she doesn't, she just doesn't trust men and Jimmy's the only one Mm. that she will come close to trusting but because he's away as a musician all the time there's there's always a distance and in that distance she has safety and control well there's an element where she isn't willing to put him in danger she does care about him enough to not want to get him sucked into what's going on any more than he needs to be and she's very apologetic about getting him even as involved Mm -hmm. as wiring her some money like that's all she asks him to do what do we think about so uh, Thelma and Louise are on the road and Jimmy knows that he needs to wire the money to a bank in Oklahoma City when Louise goes to pick the money up he's there he's flown out which is great because in a lesser film that would be an incredible romantic gesture Mm -hmm. but in this it's like a it's just a kind of a wet fart complication (laughs) it's like well i don't think he intends it 
to be a romantic gesture. I think he's properly concerned, wants to know what's going on, and wants I, I genuine. I think he genuinely wants to help um, more than just send in some money. Of course, for Louise, who knows what the situation is, it's a complication because, as you say, she doesn't want to drag him any further in than she already has. But also, I think she wants to just deal with it herself. An almost self-destructive desire to just deal with it yourself and not rely on anybody else. What do you think of his... Um proposal if we can call it that yeah well i don't think we can really call it that can we <laughs> he sort of just hands her the it, ring in a box and just is like i've got this for you it's like the wrong solution to the wrong problem yeah yeah <laughs> like it just it couldn't be further from what she needs i think um louise is just done with the not enoughness of men <laughs> when she pulls the trigger in that car park 20 minutes in mm. the whole way through she's just like i am absolutely through with men being shit <laughs> yeah i'm better off alone than i am shackled to a shit bloke mm. and but that doesn't mean that she doesn't understand what a big gesture that is from him and she oh, does yeah. appreciate it and she does like care about him but it's just like no do you know what like i've outgrown all i'm, I'm so far past this romantic shit mm. it's holding me back yeah i like that i like that read of it <laughs> and michael madsen in that scene is um kind of held up against uh, another character we can come on to if we're ready if you've got anything else to say about jimmy interestingly there's only there's one moment of uh, michael madsen's performance that i just don't quite believe yeah and it's actually i don't believe it for the same reason that i don't think he would have been right to play harlan it's when he loses his temper oh yeah that felt a bit tacked it, on it, didn't yeah it, it did it, it it felt like this is what the script and the director are asking me to do michael madsen is so laid back when you look at him in reservoir dogs the whole reason when he cuts that ear off is he's having such a good time and he's so chilled out and all the way through that film he's so chilled out i yeah, don't think yeah. i've ever seen a michael madsen performance that isn't sort of chilled out and that moment where he loses his rag i just didn't buy it it felt as you say, tacked on it. Did it. I'm not saying that he didn't do it well. It just it didn't no. feel like the character. I think that it's quite a it's a route one approach mm. to demonstrating someone losing their temper. Yeah. And it's like, well, what other ways can a man demonstrate a feeling? <laughs> <laughs> He knocks some shit off a table. (laughs) Hulk out. I mean, the film has been criticised for the way it uh, represents men. I don't agree with that criticism, Mm -hmm. apart from in that moment. I would say that would be a compelling argument for it being a bit broad brushstrokes. It's like man reaction equals table flip. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm really glad you brought that up. I felt the same way. Yeah, an interesting that it's come into criticism for its depictions of men because actually there's a lot of nuance in the way men are depicted in contrast to each other like taken in isolation a lot of the male characters are sort of grotesque caricatures thinking particularly of Daryl and the truck driver and men on the whole in this movie are not to be trusted but I think that's largely because you see men through Louise's eyes primarily because you need to so that you understand why she doesn't trust Hal, played by Harvey Keitel. Mm. Because there are several points in this movie where tragedy could be averted to some extent, where they could go back. Actually, uh, when I watched it with Jem the other night, and she's seen it a load of times, and after the murder, she was like, yeah, I still don't really understand why they don't just go home. They'd probably have gotten away with it if they'd just gone home. I think there are there are routes out of trouble for them that they, for whatever reason, don't take. I don't think it's just that they don't think it'll work out all right for them. I think they get on the road and they have this sense of freedom and uh, sort of emancipation. And they like that and they keep going with it. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. Not going back 
not going to the police, not do, all of the choices that they make have got absolutely nothing to do with the kind of real world, kind of immediate problem mm -hmm. that they're trying to solve. Yeah. Every choice that they make is to do with the fact that the circumstances we find them in at the beginning are intolerable mm -hmm. to them. They don't know that. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they they the reason they're going away at the start of the film is to get a little bit of respite from the intolerable circumstances that society and the culture yeah. have them in. But when they hit the road, they find that there is no respite. Yeah. In, in fact, circumstances are potentially as bad if not worse there is no kind of break to be had from the kind of tyranny of the patriarchy yeah and that means that like i mean yeah they could go back but to what to unlivable circumstances yeah. the only way to truly be free of their lives being dictated by men is to drive off a cliff together yeah, interesting and once you've had a taste of that freedom that's the best thing that you can do yeah for the first time certainly the first time for thelma the first time in however long for Louise, these two women are making choices for themselves. And the choices that they make are always to continue to go on. And they get themselves into deeper and deeper trouble doing that. But the important thing is that they are their choices. And it is their mm. choice in every instance to keep going. Louise chooses to shoot Harlan. It is in the heat of the moment, but it's very clearly a choice that she makes. Mm. Whereas, as they, as they say later, it wasn't really self-defence. Um, no they could lie and say that it was, and they would probably get away with it if they did. Particularly if they'd done so straight after. Like, and they sort of start asking themselves later, oh, why didn't we go to the police? And I think very economically, Louise says, well, no, we can't go to the police because they won't believe us. Sure. And later when she's doubting that decision, mm -hmm. Thelma is like, no, you were right. You were absolutely right. Of course they wouldn't have believed us. Sure. Yeah, that's true. That's just that's just the truth of the world that we live in. Yeah. Still, now, Still now, you know, this film's... This film is like 32 years old and it's still the same. Mm -hmm. So we veered slightly, but we have now touched on Harvey Keitel. Yes. Shall we have a chat about Hal? Oh, shall we? <laughs> My favourite thing is that when we when we meet Hal at the start and he's interviewing that waitress yeah. and they've got a little thing going yeah. on. She really likes him and that makes us <laughs> like him. We immediately yeah, know, absolutely. okay, yeah, Hal is all right. Especially because, I mean, that waitress is a really good kind of indicator of character because mm. she's like, you know, that guy is a skeezball and a rapist. Yep. This guy is a nice cop guy. And it's like, yeah, okay, I, be I believe you, waitress. And she has that wonderful line about like, do you not think that being a waitress for a living makes me an expert witness? Yes. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> yeah, sort of expert in human behaviour. Um, okay, well, I, I want to talk about the representation of law enforcement in general. Yeah, okay. Because law enforcement in general in this movie, they're all either idiots or ridiculous a lot of the comic relief comes yeah. in the sections where we're with law enforcement Stephen Toblowski who comes in as the FBI guy a little bit later mm. uh, Max his name is so there's something there's something about that actor that is just inherently funny as I, I described him earlier he's one of the one of the great oh it's him actors in so many of the scenes that he has in this there's just a wonderful little character choice that I don't know if you picked up on he's always eating <laughs> there's there's a scene where they're watching the CCTV footage of Thelma uh, robbing the liquor store and he's sat there just munching into a burger and having the best time there's a scene later on when Thelma and Louise phone Daryl Max shows up he's got a napkin tucked into his FBI shirt <laughs> This little paper, this little tiny little sort of paper napkin tucked into it. It's just so ridiculous. And then later on, he comes and joins um, Hal standing in the window, and he's just he's just munching on a bowl of cereal as he's uh, he's holding in his hand. It's just 
And that's beautiful. He's, he's such a he's such a preposterous figure, but not ever overplayed, but inherently comedic. And then the other sort of law enforcement figures that you see, you see a cop who's too stupid not to know that his police car can't fit under a bridge when they're chasing. Yes. And then there's of course <laughs> the scene where the uh, he's a New Mexico state trooper, I think. So he, they they get pulled over, and that's when Thelma pops up in the window holding the gun to his head, and he almost immediately sort of breaks down and it's yeah it's it's i think it, it is supposed to be funny um watching this yeah, figure of authority <laughs> he's in tears and they're being so polite to they're him so polite. they're like i'm really sorry about this i'm really really sorry like yeah. that's yeah such an excellent scene it's so funny yeah that line that she says about like oh well make sure you're sweet to them because my husband wasn't sweet to me and look how i turned out and it's like you're being so polite to him um although <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it when we come on to jd but that's how she's learned to do crime as well yeah 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 and then just uh about that that state trooper um there's one tiny little scene that is sort of throwaway where the the cyclist this black cyclist shows up and i think it is significant that he's black um Mm -hmm. because i think all i can the only reason i can think that scene is in the movie is that it's to do with tensions between the black community and the police Mm -hmm. um which this came out a year before the la race riots Mm. so the simmering tensions which let's face it had been there for decades previously um were coming to a head again yeah the cyclist he blows smoke into the air holes just to just to fuck with the police officer yeah the 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 film's attitude to authority figures be the police or the fbi it doesn't look kindly on them let's put it that way and it doesn't treat them very kindly definitely sets up a us and them apart from that bit with Hal Mm -hmm. and 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 Daryl kind of ends up getting embroiled with all the cops that um the one of the other thing one of the other scenes that I was just like this tells me everything I need to know about this police force Mm -hmm. is that shot where they're in Daryl and Thelma's house and all the cops are sitting watching a kind of black and white movie yes and Daryl tries to put some sports on and they're all like oh no what are you doing what are you doing and then he has to put he has to put the black and white movie on and he's sort of looking around at all the police like what (laughs) yeah the cops are all set up as kind of comedy not to be taken seriously kind of ineffectual and even Hal Hal's ineffectual ultimately ultimately yeah I think it says more about law enforcement in general uh, than it does about Mm. he himself he he can't operate effectively in his role as a police officer because everybody that he's surrounded with and the Mm. entire institution that he's surrounded with is Mm. incompetent as much as he tries he can't get Thelma and Louise out of the situation that they're in the institutions that are part of the culture that the two leads are operating in Mm -hmm. don't serve anyone and kind of a wider sort of feminist comment Mm. it's like the patriarchy serves no one no one benefits from it because like Harvey Cartel as kind of pretty much the only sympathetic male character in the film and um, he is massively let down by the institution because he is unable to do, perform his job mm-hmm. there's not, not much else really to say about how he yeah just no. he is sincere in his desire to see them a, a, as good a resolution to the situation as mm. possible um, but then again i mean he is also part of the problem because for him a resolution is the women back under the thumb of society. Sure. He, he, he isn't able to comprehend why they are doing this. Yeah. Like, why aren't they turning themselves in? And in a way, he represents a different part of the problem to the kind of overt oppression, the overt aggression. He represents a different part of it, which is the, the nice guys, yeah. <laughs> and I'm doing bunny ears, yeah. who thinks they're an ally, but in their 
kind of ineptitude or ineffectualness, yeah. um, he is actually part of the problem as well. Sure. And from that point of view, actually, the film does give you quite a good range of men. <laughs> They're all shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's got he has that conversation with Louise where he says that you want to get out of this alive. She just says, "Well, think about it. Imprisonment, or no, she, uh, she says incarceration, cavity searches, death by electrocution. Mm. I'll have to think about it." Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's one of the key kind of questions at the heart of the film, which is. Uh, what's the difference between living and life? Yeah. <laughs> and w- what is the point at which your life doesn't become worth living? Yeah. And how do you re- how do you come to that realisation? And maybe it's when you see Brad Pitt's abs. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we talk about Jamie? I think, I think we have to. Um, <laughs> to be honest, there's not a right lot to say about no, him. Not a huge amount. Um, I mean, but he turns up, he's a drifter that they pick up um, to give a lift to. Um, he then has a one night stand with Thalma and then steals all their money. That is the function he performs yep. uh, in the film. Um, and there's a sex scene. Now, mm-hmm. here's an interesting thing. The, uh, the sex scene, it's only a couple of minutes of screen time, but apparently there is a version of the sex scene that exists that's 15 minutes long. What the fuck? And composer Hans Zimmer said of it that it is the best love scene since Don't Look Now, the 15-minute version. Good God. 15 (laughs) minutes? 15 minutes. I mean, that's... uh, Frankly, that's longer than I need. (laughs) (laughs) I think across the board, it's probably longer than most actual sex that happens in the world. (laughs) Anyway, um, he's been described in this film as a kind of femme fatale figure. I guess that's kind of right. And also the film has come under criticism for the way that the camera leers at him in the way that women generally speaking have been leered at Mm. in in film the way that he is shot and kind of lusted after by the camera is something that people have a problem with interesting did uh, is is that um a a reading that people had uh, or a a problem that people had back then or is it something that um it was back then interesting from what i've been reading not very many people who've been writing about it kind of recently have said whether or not they agree that that's a correct criticism but they've discussed the fact that it was a criticism at the time interesting so it's more a discussion of the criticism than of the actual issue if you see what i mean yeah sure i think the camera does leer at him but i don't think that's a problem uh i didn't have an issue with it but kind of because i think that the the character he's a grifter mm-hmm. and part of the point is that he, he he wants to be leered at so that he can get in thelma's pants and steal her money in a way yeah that that's kind of the way he's setting himself up yeah that's true um, um i think for me more, more more to the point that thelma is leering at him whether he wants it or not you know what mm, I mean mm. and as we see him through Thelma's eyes mm. yeah that, that I think that leery camera is uh, is appropriate in this instance because that yeah, yeah. it's not like Michael Bay shooting Megan Fox's ass all the time you know what I mean yeah yeah it's appropriate to the story that's being told I think especially given the fact that if it just leered at him mm-hmm. um, and all he did was rob them but the fact that there is and I you know it is an important scene because mm. it's a, a progression it's something has happened happened in Thelma's character that means she's engaged in, in a one night stand mm-hmm. an extramarital affair it, it's a representation on screen that women can have one night stands mm-hmm. to fulfill their own pleasure and that's okay and normal yeah 
and it's not like a shocking terrible thing yeah another interesting bit of criticism that i read yeah. was people people criticizing the film from the point of view of like oh yeah it's it's saying that the thing that was wrong with this woman is she just needed to have an orgasm or she just needed to have some good sex with someone she fancied and that's mm. fixed her i don't get that at all no, I I, that. that is not what i see even remotely to me it's part of a very complex puzzle in terms of Thelma's development but she doesn't come away from that experience pining for him no no do you know what I mean? The rest of the film doesn't become about this one night stand she had. Sure. It, I mean, it, it sort of does, but in a different way. Because I don't know if the sex positive reading uh, is undercut somewhat by the fact that the consequence of that one night stand is he then runs off with all the money and then mm. they're fucked. Or I, I suppose you could argue that that's not a consequence of the one night stand itself, but a consequence mm. of leaving him with the money. But I, I don't know mm. that you can really untangle the two events quite that neatly. Mm. It originally was written as a kind of dual sex scene. So it was meant to be JD and Thelma in one room, mm -hmm. kind of intercut with Louise and Jimmy in the other sure. room. And Susan Sarandon talked Ridley Scott out of it and was like, I just don't think that this is appropriate for the character at this point. And so they kind they ended up that scene that is intercut where uh, Louise and Jimmy are talking mm -hmm. kind of late into the night. That was improvised oh, wow. um, between Susan Sarandon and Michael Madsen, mm -hmm. which I think is a really good call. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree. Yeah, do you think, do you think Louise and Jimmy have sex that night? Don't know. I don't, yeah, I kind of don't care. No, I, <laughs> I, 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 I think don't that there's either. a maturity. There's a maturity to their relationship. Yeah, how 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 sexual do you think their relationship is? I don't know if it even is that sexual. Yeah, I suspect it might not be. I mean, we go back to that line at the very start: "Smoking kills your sex drive," and then we immediately see her smoking. I sus I suspect that Louise probably hasn't had a right lot of sex since she was raped. Um, and I think that it's just not a thing she needs. Like you know, the critics could not say of Louise like oh she just needs a, she just needs a good shag no. um, and that'll sort her out I get the feeling that they're kind of ships in the night in a different version of life they could have had their go they could have had their chance and mm. they've just they just keep missing each other and it has never quite worked out mm. it doesn't mean there's not love there it's just not yeah. Louise has got too much stuff on her mind. The, the, the scene where they say goodbye in the diner is really interesting. Yeah. Beautifully undercut. It's like a really lovely, sincere moment where they kind of kiss goodbye and it's quite emotional. And then that waitress comes over and is like, oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we thought the table was going to set on fire or yeah. whatever it is she says. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a great scene because you've got that sort of the the really bittersweet and um, sort of tender goodbye that I, I get quite sad watching that because I, I, it it feels it feels real and it feels like a, a like a proper goodbye but it's that thing they they don't really want it to be Mm. Um, and then, as you say, it's undercut with that line from the waitress. And then the next thing that happens is Thelma comes in and she's on the ceiling having just got laid. And so it's suddenly a really sort of delightful, uh, lovely energy in the room. Then there's the revelation that she's left JD alone in the room with the money and oh fuck Ugh. so you go through this the whole gamut of emotions in that scene and that's sort yeah. of the, the the midpoint of the story that sort of a crisis point yeah. isn't it when they lose the money it's when louise loses control yeah. of the situation and and despairs Thelma sees louise completely lose control and lose she just loses her shit and so um and Thelma's like i'm gonna sort this 
I'm going to be the one who deals with this. And so they pull over and while Thelma goes in to rob the store, which Louise doesn't know she's doing, but instead of following Thelma, we stick with Louise Mm -hmm. and she has a really lovely, I mean, again, I'm just going to wang on about um, the the beautiful visual metaphor for (laughs) the the rejection of the patriarchal society. The um, Louise lights a cigarette goes to put some lipstick on and then throws her lipstick away. And Mm. it's just a really lovely moment of like, no, she's whatever the old life held for her with its its rules, its expectations, its standards. She's fucking done with it. (laughs) She she gets rid of her her jewellery later on as well, doesn't she? Yeah, she does. And I just think it's really wonderful. I mean, yeah, we do get to see what happens inside because Mm. we get to see the CCTV footage of Thelma doing what JD taught her to do, which is just be polite. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm glad we get to see inside the store, but I wouldn't have minded if we didn't because we all I feel like we already know how she's going to go about it because we've had that bit where JD is like this is what you do it's more important that we see what's happening to Louise in that moment. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, stay stay with where the actual drama is. Because, I mean, yeah. that might sound like a strange thing to say uh, because, you know, oh, what could be more dramatic than than uh, an armed robbery? Well, mm. actually, this moment here with Louise is more dramatic. Louise is busy having her dark night of the soul. Yeah. <laughs> Let's stay with her. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then we can just get a little shot of the armed robbery, which is, is funny because she's so polite. And as I say, we've got Maxie in a great big burger while he's watching it and uh, Daryl's there watching it as well like in his in his teal suit he's got a teal jacket (laughs) like everything Daryl wears in this movie is just ridiculous I love the scene where he's watching American football on the TV and he's just sort of there in his pajama bottoms and this vest like and and it's like he doesn't know what to how to look after himself Thelma's gone away and he just doesn't know how to take care of himself he's there in the dark with like a TV dinner on his lap when the cops turn up to talk to him he like steps in his his pizza pizza, but doesn't even notice the cop has to point it out to him it's so great Daryl is the most sort of sublime man child he's so disgusting (laughs) yeah I mean you you know I love a pathetic male character and yeah he's gone straight into my hall of fame for that I guess the the only other character that we haven't talked about who we meet a few times is um, the trucker Mm -hmm. who I mean there's not a right lot to say sure I can understand how people might have an issue with him being a bit of a caricature. Mm -hmm. However, unfortunately, people like that exist in the world exactly as he's depicted. There is no Mm. caricature about it. And what I love about the the trucker Mm -hmm. is the way that Thelma and Louise interact with the trucker is actually a really lovely way of charting their development as characters Mm. because they it's that magic rule of three. We meet the trucker three times and the first time they're really rattled, it ruffles their feathers. The second time, there's a kind of, oh, just put up with it. And then the third, the final time, they don't even have to discuss what they're going to do to him. They just know. Yeah, and they take revenge. Yeah. I thought they were going to kill him, actually. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but uh, I'm glad that they didn't. But I did think that they were, I think, yes. I thought that they might. And the ki- a killing would be unjustified in that moment. Yeah, it would be unjustified. Um, I mean, yeah. ar- arguably what they do is unjustified. But yeah, interesting. The trucker, my problem isn't with the character or the depiction. Mm. I don't mind that it is a broad caricature. It's the only performance in the film that I don't like. Mm. It's the only performance in the film that I don't rate okay. at all. Okay, um, It's sort of... what. <sighs> Where it's encapsulated for me, actually, is in the moment where they blow the truck out. He's on his knees doing all this wailing and howling. And I don't believe a moment of his performance. Yeah. And it encapsulates an issue I had with him 
running up to that. He's doing comedy breakdown acting. Yeah, I see what you mean. And it took me out of that moment. It stopped me from enjoying that moment a little bit, actually. It stopped me from having the catharsis and it stopped me from laughing, um, which I think you're supposed to. I think he's probably giving the performance he's giving Mm -hmm. purely so that it's funny. Because if he was playing it real yeah. it would be a greyer area as far as I think it would be funnier I think it would yeah. be funnier and more cathartic if he was playing it much straighter than he does mm. um, and I don't know if it's that he's been directed to play it mm. for laughs but yeah I, I no, it annoyed me fair enough because I wanted to feel catharsis and I didn't I don't generally like criticising actors but I sometimes well the buck's got to stop with the director because ultimately oh, yeah. He's the person who could have said, rein this in a bit, mate, or you need to do it a bit differently. Yeah. yeah, in terms of the direction, is there much really to say other than it's very good? Hasn't Ridley Scott done a good job? Um, this is where I think we can see the uh, the fingerprints from Ridley Scott's earlier work, particularly Blade Runner, mm. is that he, he loves painting with shadows. You know what I mean? Everybody is in shadow all the way through and he he loves blinds and he loves steam rising and dust in this instance rising and rain mm. coming down it's those sort of film noir elements particularly in those early works uh, are very very strong it's it's sort of what it's what blade runner is famous for those those visuals mm. those sort of film noir visuals and you get it very strongly here as well i mean it looks great i think when you revealed that we were going to be watching Thelma and louise last week i, I was like well whatever happens i feel pretty confident that it's going to look great yeah (laughs) what like it's going to be gorgeous because i i associate ridley scott with stunning visuals yeah Yeah, it didn't disappoint it was absolutely gorgeous i I really had in my head that thing we were talking about about the every frame of painting Mm. thing and i was like as i was sitting watching it i was just like yeah i could pause it there and look at that and think that's beautiful yep could pause it there could pause it there the whole thing, it's stunning. With the exception of that final frame. <laughs> the uh, the car going over the cliff? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, I've got issues with it. Okay, cool. Should we talk yes, about please. It? The ending? Yeah, yeah, we must. So, I mean, you know, spoiler, they, uh, they have a fabulous kind of final chase through the desert where they're being pursued by all of these cop cars. Mm. It's really stunning to watch as they're all driving across the desert. At the end, they've got the choice. They can either give themselves up or they can drive off a cliff. There isn't any other choice. There's nowhere else for them to go. Mm. It's interesting, Thelma doesn't say, it's Thelma's suggestion. Mm-hmm. Thelma, she doesn't say drive off the cliff. She says, keep going, yeah. drive. That's beautiful. Yeah. So they drive off the cliff. Now, there is, a, so the, they they put their foot down, the dust all spills up, and Harvey Keitel starts running towards the car to try and stop them. And the final kind of frame, it so the car goes off the cliff, and then it freezes as the car is halfway across the frame, it, like the car is flying. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of dissolve into a sort of reel of um, photos of their highlights from the film. So they're kind of like um, their best moments. Yeah. The issue was, so the screenwriter, Callie Curry, was like absolutely adamant she didn't want us to see the car crash. Yeah. She didn't want to, she didn't want us to see or acknowledge that the women died. Yeah. Whereas Ridley Scott's one was like, okay, I don't think we need to see the car crash, but I think we need to know that they're going to die. Mm. So there was this kind of to and fro about it. I'm totally with them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm totally with them about seeing the car, not seeing the car crash. I think that's really a wonderful thing. Yeah. It, and it's so tiny, Ed, but I think that the it just ends a few frames too soon. Oh, interesting. Whereas the car goes off the cliff and it's in the middle of the screen and it dissolves away. Mm-hmm. I just, I felt like it had just been cut short 
ever so slightly. Mm. I just wanted it to go on a little bit longer. It's interesting you say that because I sort of want it to, to end a few frames earlier. Mm. I, I, okay. I, want it, I, I want it to freeze before it's begun its descent. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want them taking off in that car because that to me is the point of that ending. I, I don't want them coming down. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's, it, it's interesting. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that you go the other way. I would have had the car disappear in the dust uh-huh. and then Harvey Keitel run to the edge and look down. So I actually wouldn't have seen the car take off at all. Ooh. Because Ooh. <laughs> to me, it feels a little bit like the end of Greece. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> With the flying car. That's what I thought of. It feels naff to me. I know. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. I think there's a way of telling exactly the same story, mm. but without me feeling a little bit like we go together. I hadn't I hadn't made those. I don't know Greece very well. I've only seen it once. Um, yes, yeah, so I hadn't made that connection. But I mean, now that you bo- mentioned it, I'll, it I'll never unsee it. <laughs> Um. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just thought I'd ruin that. That's fine. Yeah. Is it is it naff with twenty twenty three eyes? Yeah, um, probably. Whereas in nineteen ninety one, sort of freeze frame endings were a bit of a thing back then. Anyway, mm-hmm. I mean they were probably getting a little bit old hat. Like you'd had like throughout the eighties, freeze frame endings were a thing. Mm. Like the end of Rocky three, I think it is, and the end of all of those TV shows. So maybe, ah, I don't know. Maybe maybe it is a bit naff. It's interesting because you get the car freezes in the air, and then you just get this over the end credits, a uh, little sort of just montage of them. Louise having a nice time on their adventure which I'm not wild about I, I sort of I, I was happier just ending on the image of the car I think that last montage is there so we're not thinking about their mangled bodies mm. because it, like yeah they're, they're about to have actually quite a horrible death question for you Ed mm-hmm. is it a happy ending well from whose perspective I think from their perspective yeah uh, I think from poor old Hal's perspective probably not I think he's gonna be haunted by his failure to at least in his eyes save these two women but Daryl I think he's probably give a shit it's not a happy ending for Jimmy although he'll probably be philosophical about it It, it's ambiguous but I think certainly from the point of view of our two leads it's a happy ending as I uh, said a bunch of times it's all about these two women for the first time making decisions for themselves at every Mm -hmm. stage and yes we can look at those decisions and say that's the wrong decision to make or that's a stupid thing to do but they make them and they live with them and they live with the consequences and then they go on and they have another choice to make and it's all about making those choices and being free to make those choices in a sort of, in a sort of existentialist kind of way it's about living your life and being free to make those choices and that choice that they make at the end is the ultimate choice uh, you'll have to forgive me because i formed this thought mm-hmm. over the course of our discussion but it's a martyrdom Okay. The film. It's a, a call to action mm-hmm. and then an epic and then two characters who would rather die than give up on their principles and their beliefs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm on board with that. If this was a witch film, they'd be burnt at the stake at the end, but it would be cathartic and it would be a good thing. Yeah, they are Joan of Arc. And th- I mean, this might lead us into the kind of reception and reviews and the kind of cultural impact. Yeah. This film is so much more than what you see on screen. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I didn't realise this when we sat down, when you suggested it and then we sat down to watch it and thing but in the reading that I've done around it I hadn't realised what an enormous big deal an important film this is which is really exciting I'm really glad I watched the film before I found that out but I now am able to reflect and go actually yeah no okay this is mm-hmm. um, yeah it's a film about film about dying for a cause and I think that's why it connected with a lot of people mm-hmm. And why it, yeah. why it was very important to a lot of people and still is very important to a lot of people mm. to, to this day. Coming to it as a newbie, I think it's going to be a very important film to me moving forward, mm. you know? That's cool. Is there anything else about the film that you'd like to talk about that we've not covered? So I think I think we're agreed on, on the feminist reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's certainly the most common reading of the film. There is 
it occurs to me a misogynistic reading of the film as well mm-hmm. in the like particularly when you look at Thelma it's about <laughs> if you were to look at it from a misogynist mm-hmm. point of view you have this woman who once she's away from her husband she loses all control of her faculties and she can't really exist in the real world um, mm. and as a result she and her friend end up dead. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to sort of uh, yeah. bring, bring that other potential reading to the conversation. Well, there's a kind of, there, I mean, I know upon its release, it really split people. Mm. Like, while generally, it did really well at the box office and it was really favourably reviewed, but there were a lot of articles that were written about it mm-hmm. um, that kind of denounced it. Dangerous film about toxic feminism. Mm-hmm. And at the point at which the film was released, we were just heading into third wave of feminism, mm-hmm. coming out of what is called like the sex wars of the 80s. Sure. So we were in a really weird place culturally. And this film was a really important film at the start of third wave feminism, Mm -hmm. which was much more about like a deep dive into some of the issues that had been brought up and fought for in sort of second wave feminism. Mm -hmm. And this film, in the way in which it kind of falls into that category is it's treating women as individuals and understanding that oppression is a very layered thing that affects different people differently depending on their class, race, all those things. Mm -hmm. Intersectionality. Yes. (laughs) I've done, I I did done do some reading and I am, I wanted to try and be articulate about this stuff mm-hmm. rather than it being something that I just know I agree with like and I understand it but I can't articulate yeah, it very sure. well do you know what I mean that is one of the reasons why I completely agree with you but from a di- kind of slightly different point of view I think the um, that scene with the cyclist and the cop mm-hmm. is really important because yeah it's a racial tension kind of brewing culturally but also a thing about like yeah f- feminism isn't just about women <laughs> And it's also about race, gender identity, Mm -hmm. sexuality, class, all of this other stuff. It touches a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. But yeah, when it came out, there was a lot of people had a lot of issue with the violence. Mm -hmm. Not acknowledging the fact that if these were two men, no one would have anything to say about the violence whatsoever. What what, what was the nature of people's problem with the violence? uh, That it was gratuitous um, and that um, a lot of feminists had issues with the film Mm -hmm. because they were like, it depicts women as kind of man-hating violent evil people you know Mm -hmm. i don't know i think i think there there might be some validity to that reading i don't know that's the intention of the movie but no there's a quote i want to read you one of the quotes is from the screenwriter callie curry Mm -hmm. and this is from a relatively recent interview that she gave um at an Australian film festival. And she said, if you're threatened by this movie, well, now you know how women feel every time they go in the movie theatre. I feel for you, buddy. (laughs) Is what she said. (laughs) Another one that I just want to read, another quote, is by a a journalist called Pat Morrison. Mm -hmm. Um, And she said this at the time. So this was, she's an American journalist. She says of Thelma and Louise, if you gentlemen are squirming at the matinee, it's because a movie has made you feel for two hours the way this culture has managed to make women feel for years. And I feel like um, that's, yeah, that, that mm. I agree with that. <laughs> um, what, what if as a man I'm not squirming? Has the movie not worked for then, me? Or does that mean I'm all right? <laughs> I think it means you're one of the good ones, Ed. Are you one of the good ones or are you a baddie? Did you think that mm. uh, Daryl was a really sympathetic character who uh, was really hard done by in the film? <laughs> yeah, Daryl's the hero, right? <laughs> Oh yeah, no, it's Daryl's story, yeah. totally, yeah. Ed, has your opinion of the film changed over the course of our discussion? What do you um, um, no, my, what do you think of it now? My, my opinion hasn't 
changed. Yeah, you've, you've brought a few extra wrinkles to my mind, which is lovely. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no. I hope they're pl- pleasing wrinkles. They are, they are. But yeah, interesting stuff to mull over. Yeah, no, I'm still generally pretty thumbs up. Um, how about you? Yeah, ditto. Um, actually, I mean, talking about it, getting to talk about it has made me love it even more. And I'm really excited to watch it again. Yeah. I was saying to you at the start, there is not enough time to consume everything that I want to consume about this film mm. and its like legacy and what it means. And removing all of that, trying to think about when I was sitting on the sofa watching the film and actually like as a consumer enjoying it. I had a blast. I think it's really masterful filmmaking it, and it's a really good story with really good characters. It's just great. I'd recommend it to anybody. All of the stuff around it aside, all of the like kind of academic uh, analysis mm-hmm. aside, I think that it's a film that um, if you want to dig deep into it, you can get an enormous amount from it. There's a lot there. But just as a film on its own, it's really quality. Yeah, I agree. I'd just like to give a shout out, if I may, mm. to another podcast. Because I um, a lot of the information that I got to kind of pass on here and some of the quotes and stuff I was alerted to by listening to uh, this podcast, which is a wonderful film co- podcast. Anyone who's interested in film may probably have already heard of it. It's called You Must Remember This. Mm. And it's a podcast by Karina Longworth. It's a fantastic podcast series and she does seasons. She is currently doing an erotic 90s season and one of the episodes covers Thelma and Louise. And there's a lot of really, really interesting information in there, which I haven't said because that would just be play outright plagiarism <laughs> um so rather than just repeat a load of stuff i'm just going to say go away and um, re yeah. go away and listen to karina longworth's you must remember this podcast cool i must have a listen do you must i'd quite like to chat about the music for a moment the use of music and yeah movie. absolutely um, which yeah and the the stuff the original music by hans zimmer um, the way that score fits in so beautifully with this uh, sort of country rock soundtrack, which yeah, it's it's a it's a real a real skill. I think <laughs> I had to have a little boogie at the start. Yeah, yeah. Van Morrison's "Wild Night" is a song that gets me moving anyway, and it turns out that the somewhat camper 1970s Martha Reeves cover that plays uh, when when the, over the packing scene, I think it is. Uh, yeah, mm. it turns out that that also gets me moving. Jeff had a look at me Excellent. from the sofa. She She's like, what is happening over there? It's um, it's such a great soundtrack. It is. Yeah, and like um, when they're at the bar mm. before it all turns much more sinister and they're line dancing and it... I want to go to that bar. Yeah. I feel like I've been to that bar. I could smell it. I, could, I, like, I, I got sweaty just watching it. <laughs> line dan- I'd forgotten that line dancing was a thing that existed and that people were briefly <laughs> crazy about in the 90s. Like, it's one of the most ridiculous things. Sorry to any line dancers um, out there, but my God, I don't get it. <laughs> in the way that, was it last week? When, when were we talking about how smug swing dancers are? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there isn't an ounce of smugness in line no. dancing. No. It's completely joyful. I love it. We used to go, in the 90s, my mum used to take us uh, line dancing oh, yeah? on like a Tuesday night, and it was brilliant. 
brilliant fun. Amazing. Um, I just wanted to give you a couple of um, other... Um, I forgot to talk about this when we covered JD as a character. Yeah. Some of the other actors who were auditioned for the role mm. include George Clooney, Robert Downey Jr., Mark Ruffalo, Dylan McDermott, Dermot Mulroney, uh, and a couple of other people who I didn't remember. But uh, it was Gina Davis who selected Brad Pitt <laughs> to play that character. So there Can't you go. think why she would have done that. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a lot to thank Gina Davis for. Yeah. Well, yeah. You look at you look at Brad Pitt in this movie, and I don't I don't know if it's again if it's twenty twenty three eyes, but you do see a future star. Oh yeah, yeah. I had a quick look at what he'd done up to this point, and like he'd done stuff, but not a right lot. So he wasn't he was an experienced actor, but this was his breakthrough role, yeah. uh, and you can see why. Just in any other business, this has got nothing really mm-hmm. to do with anything, but it just made me think. You know, you were talking about the um, character who's always eating. Oh yeah. Earlier, um, one of my favourite Brad Pitt films, Ocean's Eleven, mm-hmm. the Steven Soderbergh film. His character Rusty is always eating. Oh, is that right? <laughs> and I wonder if he nicked it from that guy. It's quite possible that he did. It's just the um, the difference between an actor and a movie star. I always sort of think of it as a movie star gets by and can carry the movie on the sheer force of their personality and that sort of. Yeah intangible charisma yeah it's actually a question that they asked our lecturer asked in the in our old Hollywood mm-hmm. session last week what's the difference between an actor and a movie star and I immediately was like well Tom Cruise I suppose I would say is a movie star mm-hmm. like I can't really think of any other actors that there are at the moment who you'd go and see the film for them not for the rest of the film um, and it's different mm-hmm. from being a draw it's different from like oh if we've got Brad Pitt in this film that's a good thing mm-hmm. but the film would be good anyway it's like no the, the film is secondary to the person who's in it and i can't Mm. think of anyone who's like that um will smith not at the moment for obvious reasons (laughs) but (laughs) everything leading up to the slap Mm. i I would put will smith in the movie star category yeah Uh, the rock um (laughs) definitely in the movie star category i don't know name name some actors and i'll see if i think they're actors or movie stars (laughs) oh god um that's such a terrible thing to do to me because now i can't think of any actors want to play what's the next movie i do i very much do want there are three rounds okay (laughs) round one Mm -hmm. is what would you have chosen well first of all there are so many roads you can go down so you could just follow ridley scott and do something else either either an early film or see where he is now like we could watch all the money in the world but i don't think you will have done that and it's not the road that I would choose to go down. I think I would choose to do something contemporary. I would choose to do something thematic and then (laughs) options are so something that popped into my head was another story of somebody on the run from the law and I immediately was just like Oh, let's watch The Fugitive. <laughs> so, so that that's that's what my pick's going to be. Um, yeah, for for me, I'm going to go. You'd I'm pick go the, fugitive. the Fugitive. I don't know that I would in the in the position that you're in, but yeah, that's that's what my pick is going to be. The Fugitive. <laughs> I mean, what an amazing shout! That that would have been fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I'd have gone with you. I'd have gone with you on that. <laughs> I think it's celebrating some sort of anniversary, isn't it? The Fugitive. Uh, yeah, it must be coming up in 30 years. I would have thought. Well, I tell you what. Uh, Let's let's watch that anyway, just oh, for fun for sure. this week. <laughs> now, as far as what I think you've chosen, what I hope you've done is pick another road movie. I would like I would like another road movie. And then there are there are 
three options that spring to mind in that vein. Uh, the one that comes to mind as a contemporary of Thelma and Louise, albeit sort of more off the wall and gonzo and fucking wild, uh, would be Natural Born Killers. Mm-hmm. I don't think you've gone with that. So then I'm left with a choice between two others. Classic road movies, road crime movies. Um, we've got Badlands, Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek. And we've got the one that I think you might have gone for over that. Bonnie and Clyde with uh, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. Now, I'm probably they're, they're wide all of the choices, mark. I'm probably miles off what you've done. <laughs> so I can't wait to like, find out I, what you've actually gone for. You, you're quite far off. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all of those are fantastic choices. And as you were listing them, mm. I thought, yeah, I'd, I'd also... The other one that I would throw in there as a potential road movie is True Romance. Oh, I'd yeah, go, sure. Of course. Yeah. Which I think, for anyone who's interested, I think is um, getting a re-release. Oh, really? So it is in some cinemas, you check your local independent cinema or your local like event cinema, because I do think you might get a chance to see True Romance on the big screen, mm. which I think would be really good fun. Yeah, I'd love to revisit that. I've only seen it once. Uh, yeah, me too. What I've done is <laughs> I've gone fairly basic mm-hmm. and I thought, let's follow a star. Now, when you chose this, you were very kindly, although unconsciously, helping me plug a gap in my film watching. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to watch Thelma and Louise, which I'd been ashamed for years. I'd never seen scene. Uh, we're going to see a film that I have been ashamed for years not to have ever seen before. Mm-hmm. We're going to follow Gina Davis okay. and we're going to watch Beetlejuice. Oh, well, <laughs> Yay. I honestly can't believe you've never seen Beetlejuice. I know. That, exactly. This is Everything this is I know about you, I'm shocked. Now, tell me, have you seen Beetlejuice? Yeah, a few times. Yeah. Okay, I, I, great. I, well, tell me no I more. I will tell you no more. I can't, I can't wait for you to, uh, yeah. Can't wait for you to I know, I'm really looking forward to it. And also because Beetlejuice has been in the news a lot recently because they've re- they've um, announced that Beetlejuice 2 is going to be made yeah. um, and they've been annou- slowly announcing casting, both returning cast and new additions. Mm. That, yeah. It's you know, a good time as any. I mean, don't get me started because I go off on a rant about why don't they just have some new ideas instead of revisiting things from 30 years ago and making a sequel or a reboot or whatever. Uh, next week's film will be uh, discussing Beetlejuice, directed by Tim Burton from 1988. Uh, and it's a lovely one hour, 32 minutes. Nice and short. Um, I've had a really good look. And as far as I can see, um, you, you have to rent it if you don't already own it. So it, it's rent- rentable from, I think, £2.49 from all the usual places. I'll be watching it on Prime Video, but you can also rent it on, um, I think, Google Movies and YouTube and all sorts of stuff like that. But I would really love to know what uh, our listeners would have chosen um, (laughs) instead. So please do get in touch with us. It's also worth noting, I have to say a big apologies to my sister, Kath, because when I told her that I wanted to go through Gina Davis as our link, she was like, please do Earth Girls Are Easy. You know Earth Girls Are Easy. And I was like, I've never heard of that film before in my life. Have you ever heard of it? Um, I might have heard of it. I've definitely not seen it. I got really excited when she told me the concept. And then I watched the trailer and was like, I don't want to watch this film. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> please, will you tell me what you're going to be watching this week? What you're looking forward to seeing? Um, sort of nothing. <laughs> I've got quite I've got quite a busy <laughs> week this week, to be fair. I've got... I've got Right. Shows this week and next week. Um, right. Okay. I'm certainly looking forward to catching up on this week's succession. Yeah. I don't. I don't know that I'm going to have much time for watching outside of that. Actually, if I'm honest. Yeah. What, what about what about you? What, what are you keen for this week? This week I'm keen for Bad and the Beautiful. 
the Kirk Douglas film. And I would also quite like to have seen Spartacus, which I've never seen before. Mm. So I would like to try and get those two films in before my course tomorrow. Mm. So yeah, and then the next star that we're looking at is Gene Tierney. So um, the rest of the week I'll be trying to get in as many Gene Tierney films as I can. But in amongst that, I also want to do, I'd like to start a new series because I've sort of fallen off with Yellow Jackets. Mm. I might like start at the beginning of Star Trek Next Generation or something. Oh, that sounds nice. Revisit something or like read, like rewatch all of Buffy. Or yeah. uh, well, as, as you know, Gem and I have been working our way through Frasier as our comfort watch. Yeah. Yes. And you can't really do better. So, um, all that remains is to say thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Unbreakable Movie Chain. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, And we'd love to hear from you, whether that's a movie suggestion uh, or just general thoughts and feelings. You can contact us at moviechain at outlook.com and also on all the social media platforms. It's bye from me and it's it's bye from Ed. Bye from me. (laughs) (laughs) That was flawless, Ed. I was was in mid-cough.